0: There is this thing called the fibrous cap, which really is the only thing separating all of that cholesterol grumus from the blood that's flowing in the middle of the artery. What can happen is with all that inflammation, all that oxidative stress, over time, that fibrous cap gets thinner and thinner and weaker and weaker. That fibrous cap can crack. That cholesterol grummas in the wall of the blood vessel then gets exposed to the blood and it makes blood clot. Sometimes it's like a tree falling in the forest you don't even see or hear it. Other times it blocks off the whole vessel. That's a heart attack. That's an emergency. You want a stent right away. Right away. That's cardiologist Dr.
1: Rob Ostfeld, and this, and this. is episode 146 of the Proof Podcast. Hey, friends. Welcome back. Great to be here with you again. I hope that your week is going well. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, author, nutritionist, and physiotherapist. Today's wisdom is brought to us by Dr. Rob Osfeld. Dr. Osfeld is the Director of Preventative Cardiology at Montefiore Medical Center and a professor of medicine at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Without a doubt, Dr. Osfeld is a real wealth of knowledge who we can absolutely count on for evidence-based recommendations to upgrade our heart health and lower our risk of developing cardiovascular disease, the number one cause of death in the world. Recommendations that each of us can confidently grab a hold of which let's face it in a world littered with pseudoscience and misinformation is a breath of fresh air why don't we hop straight into it sound good this is dr rob osfeld may you find it equal parts informative and instructive and i'll meet you on the other side for a short debrief and a mini science lesson of my own In line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends.
0: I see people enriched with disease, unfortunately. I see people with heart disease, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, all sorts of issues. And I mentioned you know, I've been a cardiologist now for about 15 years. And outside of a medical emergency, like somebody gets shot and has to be put back together again. I've never seen anything come close to the breadth and depth of benefits that a plant-based diet provides. The longest living populations with the most centenarians, as you and I'm sure your listeners know well, looked at by the Blue Zones, eat almost exclusively a plant-based diet. Meat is a side thing, maybe for special occasions, but it's largely a plant-based diet. And of course, they do other things, exercise and have community support. But from a 500-foot view, the longest living populations in the world eat almost exclusively a plant-based diet. You can look at populations, for example, from Japan or China, maybe from a number of decades ago, because their dietary patterns are changing now. But if you took someone from that population, at the time, much lower rates of heart disease and other sorts of issues, and then you move them to the Western world, we ruin them within a generation or two. That's not evolution. That's lifestyle. And that's a substantial change in diet, adopting the Western diet away from their traditional diet. So there's that kind of study. Then there are more basic science test tube studies that look at mechanistic issues like trimethylamine oxide, Being higher when you eat more animal based food, and that's being associated with a good bit of mechanistic detail about being worse for cardiovascular disease, new 5GC, which promotes inflammation, endotoxins, other things that promote inflammation, cholesterol, fats. So, there's a variety of different mechanistic profiles that are different between animal based foods and plant based foods that I think form a pathophysiologic bedrock behind these interesting large population studies. And these population studies, it's not just like one population, one time. It's like all across the globe. If it was just one place, you're like, well... But it's multiple places and multiple studies with different investigators and different age groups and different ethnicities. And that theme persists. And then there's, of course, interventional studies as well, where if you modify your diet in a variety of different ways, eating more toward a plant-based diet is healthier. So I feel from that 500-foot view fully backed by uh, the evidence. I do think eating nearly a whole food, plant-based diet, I mean, if you're like 98% versus 100%, we don't really know the difference long-term. We do short-term. But I think that that's the optimal dietary path now. And I should say, I have no vested interest. I have no book to sell. I have no product to sell. In fact, Practicing the way I practice, I earn less. But I think it's the right thing to do. Uh, so that's why I do it. So I think that that's the optimal dietary path. And let's prove that wrong. Think about this like when you're going to have dinner tonight. Like one unhealthy meal, like the fatty meats and the hash browns and stuff, one unhealthy meal can worsen blood vessel function for up to about six hours. But then, of course, it's lunchtime. And that's you know chicken parmesan and dinner. And that's pizza And the next day, maybe scrambled eggs or something. And it's just on and on, meal after meal. It's like you're pounding away at those endothelial cells that line your blood vessels. And it's no wonder that they kind of give up over time. But it's not just blood vessel function from one unhealthy meal. It's also lung function. Asthmatics are more likely to get readmitted to the hospital because of bronchospasm in their lungs, shortness of breath after eating more animal-based foods. And just after one meal, it can make that worse. So it's not just blood vessel function, it's not just lung function, it's also liver function. Now there's this thing called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which now in the Western world is the most common cause of liver failure, leading to liver transplants more than alcohol. Well, if you eat an animal-based meal, your liver metabolically transiently looks like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It goes away after a few hours, but that's one meal. But it's not just your blood vessel function. It's not just your lung function. It's not just your liver function. It's also your red blood cells. The red blood cells are in your blood and they carry oxygen around and they have a bunch of other things that they do. And they're usually very flexible because they have to get through small capillaries. And, but one unhealthy meal makes them change shape from a flexible thing to being very spiky. When they're spiky like that, they can poke potentially. This is the hypothesis teeny holes in the the very inner lining of the blood vessel, making them more prone to crack or rupture, causing a heart attack. And some people have speculated that that's why, after like a really unhealthy meal, there's a little bit of an uptick in risk for a cardiovascular event. So, one unhealthy meal impacting all of those things, it's really quite impressive. Uh, so, you know, if you're a healthy 25-year-old, probably no harm, no foul. But for my patients who are enriched for disease and maybe getting chest pressure from a cholesterol blockage when they walk 75 feet, uh, that could be quite clinically meaningful for them. Your audience probably knows this, but at least in the U.S., about 65% of 12 to 14-year-olds have very early signs of cholesterol disease in the blood vessels that feed their hearts with blood. Now, it's just so common. And we know that from pathology studies of kids who died for other reasons. And so the way it starts is there are these cells called the endothelial cells that line the inner wall of the blood vessel. And They're one cell layer thick, and they're really important. They make something called nitric oxide, which helps blood vessels dilate, and it's anti-inflammatory. But those endothelial cells can become damaged from a variety of things, whether it's a toxic Western diet, inflammation, pollution, smoking. Those cells can get damaged. And when that happens, then cholesterol particles that are flowing in your blood can burrow across those endothelial cells into the wall of the blood vessel. And you can think of it like if you look at a wall like in an apartment, maybe they have wallpaper and then behind it is the wall. So then those cholesterol particles burrow under the wallpaper and now they're in the wall of the blood vessel exactly where you don't want them. And when they get in there from inflammation, they can become oxidized. So when that happens, they kind of function like a splinter. And you know, like if you have a splinter in your finger, it gets all red and inflamed and painful. Well, it's the same kind of thing, except in the wall of your blood vessel. And so there's a whole inflammation process there. And what that does is it calls in more cells to the wall of the blood vessel to try to gobble up that splinter creates more inflammation, more oxidative stress in that local area to try to quiet down that inflammation, damages those endothelial cells more, more cholesterol particles burrow across, and then little teeny plaque begins to grow and grow. It's the oxidized LDL particle. Low-density lipoprotein LDL becomes oxidized, and that's particularly toxic. And interestingly, there's evidence that when you eat a plant-based diet— it is more difficult for the LDL particle to become oxidized. So yet another way that a plant-based diet may protect you from cardiovascular disease, making it harder for those particles to become oxidized. So when you have that oxidized LDL particle in the vessel wall, more inflammation, the plaque grows and grows, the endothelial cell gets sicker and sicker, the vessel gets sicker, every second of every day. It's not just like you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, then boom, some random Tuesday afternoon you have a heart attack. You are very gradually getting sicker and sicker. There is also this thing called the fibrous cap, which when this inflammatory process is there, kind of grows over the vessel, a little bit over the wallpaper. And that fibrous cap really is the only thing separating all of that cholesterol grummus from the blood that's flowing in the middle of the artery. Now you never want that blood in the artery to get blocked because it feeds all sorts of parts of your body, your brain, your heart, your legs, your sexual organs. But what can happen is with all that inflammation, all that oxidative stress over time, that fibrous cap gets thinner and thinner and weaker and weaker. And the blood is rushing by each day with some degree of sheer force. And who knows, you know, maybe those spiky red blood cells after an unhealthy meal, that fibrous cap can crack. And when that crack happens, that cholesterol grumus in the wall of the blood vessel then gets exposed to the blood and it makes blood clot. And sometimes it's like a tree falling in the forest. You don't even see or hear it. Other times it blocks off the whole vessel. And then when you eat unhealthfully, your blood is thicker and more likely to clot. It's just yet another strike against you. It's like going up the bat when the count's 0 and 2, and you're starting there. It makes your blood more likely to clot. And so anyway, then that cholesterol grumus gets exposed to the blood. It can clot off the whole artery. And when that happens, that's a heart attack. That's an emergency. You want a stent right away. They go in, and they thread a catheter either through a blood vessel in the wrist or groin up to the heart, and they inject contrast dye into the artery. And they can see exactly where that block or clot happened, they'll thread a wire across it and then they'll just open up a stent, shoving all that plaque and junk out of the way. And so it just basically like a snowplow moves it out of the way. And so that's how the stent... But you want that right away if you're having a big heart attack, no question. So what a statin does, and there's a whole bunch of different ones. They're, they're actually exquisitely effective medications. And like any medication, they have side effects and not appropriate for everyone. But if you read the internet... Like, they're the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of time, which is really quite irresponsible because for the appropriate person, it's very helpful. And, you know, we don't look at prevention as either or. It's belt and suspenders. It's a healthier lifestyle. is the cornerstone. But medications can be very appropriate in certain settings. What a statin does is it's an HMG-CoA reductase inhibitor and blocks the rate-limiting stepping LDL cholesterol formation. And so your cholesterol levels fall quite a bit. And it's been shown in a variety of studies that that can improve the health of the blood vessel wall, perhaps in some cases shrink the plaque a little bit, make you less likely to have a heart attack, less likely to have a stroke, profoundly lower LDL cholesterol levels. So, I mean, we're, sometimes they can lower them between 30 and 50%, which can be quite meaningful for some people, even without dietary changes. Most of the studies in statins actually are in people who are not having the kind of lifestyle and want someone to have. So that brings up the important question of like, well, how does it, do we know for unequivocally for sure that it's helpful in people who are truly eating a whole food plant-based diet and no oil? We don't have a lot to go on. You know, we have anecdotal case series here, case report there. Not as much to go on. So you just have to extrapolate from the best amount of evidence that you have because you have to make a decision to protect that person. And so... I will extrapolate from studies of hundreds of thousands of people, presumably with a variety of dietary patterns that just aren't outlined in the study, so you don't know. And I will extrapolate that to my patients who've had a heart attack and who are beginning to adjust their lifestyle. And anecdotally, the benefits that I've seen or that that have been reported in big, big studies have also been replicated in my smaller anecdotal experience. And I feel very comfortable given the safety profile of having patients eat that way. So those medications can lower cholesterol levels, also lower inflammation a little bit too, which can be quite helpful.
1: If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new addition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to InsideTracker.com forward slash Simon. That's InsideTracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey, friends.
0: blood levels. But the strength of that relationship is not as strong as for saturated fat. And there are a whole bunch of different kinds of saturated fats, but a number of them do raise LDL bad cholesterol levels. They can increase synthesis. They also may decrease their excretion as well. So it's sort of a double whammy. Not only that, but the saturated fat can increase the ability of the blood to want to clot, increase inflammation, so it really can come at you from a number of negative directions. But there are a variety of types of saturated fat, so some are worse than others for different metrics. But you know, on the whole, they will raise LDL cholesterol levels. There's the Hegstead equation to describe that relationship. So saturated fat will do it more than directly will dietary cholesterol. And also with dietary cholesterol, You know, cholesterol receptors inside will get saturated pretty quickly. So, these studies where someone eats like, you know, four servings of a high cholesterol food versus 12 servings of a high cholesterol food, they're really geared to show what the investigators are trying to show. It's a little inappropriate because when you eat like four servings versus 12, like, oh, cholesterol levels in the blood didn't change. So dietary cholesterol doesn't matter. Well, you know, you've saturated your cholesterol receptors by the time you've eaten those four big servings of cholesterol-laden food. The interesting question would be, none versus four servings. And then the handful of studies that do that, it does raise the cholesterol levels, not to the same degree as, say, a saturated fat would, but it's a little misleading, I think, when people do those kinds of, you know, gerrymandered studies, if you will. So it does raise it. Eating dietary cholesterol does raise it, not to the same degree as would uh, saturated fat, but it's a complicated milieu. I mean, there's a genetic component to cholesterol levels and that, Matters, there's a dietary component. And then it kind of gets complicated as well. There are lifestyle components, not dietary related. I mean, smoking, to my knowledge, doesn't necessarily raise cholesterol levels, but it can make your LDL particles more oxidized and more atherogenic. Exercise can lower cholesterol particles and be helpful for other reasons. So we want to be careful not to be too uh, reductionist about it. But yes, so saturated fat can both increase LDL cholesterol levels, decrease their clearance, increase inflammation, make blood more likely to clot. Dietary cholesterol can raise LDL blood cholesterol, not as much, and only to a point because you'll saturate your receptors. With fats, the trans and saturated fats, I don't believe are your friends. And the guidelines recommend not having trans fats or like less than 1% or something. And they also still, the Dietary Guidelines of America, keep less than 10% of your calories from saturated fat. And it's important to remember that when you eat the saturated fat, it's usually in some kind of animal product that has a variety of other Bad aspects, new 5GC, TMAO, heme iron, endotoxin, that also makes it bad. But so they recommend less than 10%. Saturated and unsaturated fat, the new dietary guidelines in the U.S. from 2015 or so, they got rid of a top number for fat. The devil is, of course, in the detail. When you compare mono and polyunsaturated fats to saturated fat, they're actually much better. I and mean, there's a variety of studies where if you remove 5% of your calories from saturated fat and replace it with 5% of calories from unsaturated fat, people do better. They have fewer cardio. That's like an olive oil, that's like a canola oil. They do better compared to saturated fat. And that's another reason why there's so much confusion about saturated fat. Because much like these sort of misleading cholesterol studies where, okay, I'm going to ask you to eat a truckload of cholesterol or two truckloads of cholesterol, and you know what? It doesn't make a difference because you're eating a truckload of cholesterol. That's misleading. And for saturated fat studies, it can be misleading because you can ask, well, instead of what? So if you say, well, we got rid of saturated fat, but look, people are still sick and dying— well, what are they eating instead of the saturated fat? Like, if you replace it with razor blades, like, they're clearly not gonna do better. I mean, I'm obviously making a ridiculous example here, but if you replace the saturated fat with simple refined carbs, like sugar cookies, people don't do better. And that's why it looked like in a number of these big analyses, that saturated fat wasn't so bad. They didn't say it was good, but they didn't say it was bad. But that's because what are you eating it instead of? So if you replace saturated fat with refined sugar cookies, okay, shocker, you're not going to do better. But if you replace saturated fat with a similar amount of calories from unsaturated fat, you do better. Or whole grains, you do better. And a whole bunch of epidemiologic studies support that. So when we say fat that can mean all sorts of things. When you say carbs, that can mean all sorts of things. So the devil is in the details. And with carbs, lots of studies show that whole grains, cereals, you know, people do better eating that. Even less diabetes eating that. You know, fruit and vegetables are Carbs, uh, and I wouldn't. I don't think anybody's going to argue. Well, maybe some people would. That eating fruits and vegetables are healthful. And, and there is a really interesting study done by this guy, Doctor Du, in China, where they looked at like four hundred and fifty thousand people, and something like that. And they had like. I don't even know, three and a half or four million person years of follow-up. And just for context, if you follow me in a study for one year, that's one person year of follow-up. They had like 3.5 million, okay? And so what they asked is, what happens if you eat more fresh fruit? Is it good? Is it bad? Well, I don't know. Let's study it. Let's look. So when they looked over a number of years, and it turns out the more fresh fruit you ate, the better you did the fewer heart attacks, the fewer strokes. Your blood pressure went down. Your blood sugar went down. Yes, your blood sugar went down eating more fruit. I'm personally kind of getting tired of hearing about how fruit causes diabetes. But then they looked at their cohort. There there were about 30,000 people in their cohort that had diabetes at the beginning, before they even started looking at them with the fresh fruit consumption. And it turns out the more fresh fruit you ate and you had diabetes at the start, the better you did. 30,000 people. Uh, And then, of course, for like the 450,000 or so that they had that didn't have diabetes at the get-go, eating more fresh fruit was associated with lower-incident diabetes. So you were less likely to get diabetes. So carbs is a really broad term. You know, it's kale And it's a sugar cookie. And those things are clearly different. And there's a cool study by Cetesia. And what Satizia did, this is in about 200 or so thousand people with about 3 million person years of follow-up, I believe. And he looked at that devil's in the detail question. And they first, they looked at a plant-based diet versus an animal-based diet. And if you ate a plant-based diet, you did better. But then they're like, you know what? A sugar cookie is not the same thing as kale. So let's look at it. What if you ate an unhealthy plant-based diet meaning a sugar cookie diet or a healthy plant-based diet meaning a kale diet? And well, it turns out that if you ate a healthy plant-based diet, you did even better, but in their study, if you ate an unhealthy plant-based diet, you actually did a little bit worse than an animal-based diet. So You know, sugar cookies and things like that, piling up on that, you know, may be compelling for people for environmental and for ethical reasons, but I wouldn't embrace that for health reasons. In terms of what I practically recommend, to be honest, I don't even dive into that degree of detail when it comes to recommending things to patients. I recommend a whole food, plant-based diet. I don't get into macronutrients because I think that I will confuse patients. I say, please have three servings of green leafy vegetables each day. Three servings of fruit each day, preferably one of those servings being berries. Three servings of other vegetables each day. Lots of herbs and spices, cinnamon, turmeric, cloves, have at it. Shake it into all kinds of stuff. Whole grain breads, not the white breads, but truly whole grain breads. And be careful about the ingredients. If it says like enriched wheat flour or bleached wheat flour, that is white bread with a tan. So, you know, be careful about that. Brown rice, I recommend not white rice. Other whole grains like quinoa, spelt, oats, beans are great. Lentils are great. I particularly love lentils. They're like nutrition rock stars. And like cost per like... Nutrition is like off the charts with lentils. So, beans, lentils, chickpeas, peas, tofu. Uh, so, you know, have a sweet potato, baked, not fried. You know, don't use sour cream, butter, but hot sauce, salsa, mustard if you want on a baked potato. Have at it a big green leafy salad each day. Uh, but I prefer uh, no salad dressing and I prefer no oil. Now, obviously, there are workarounds that, you know, you can use hot sauce, salsa, mustard, vinegar, lemon, lime, beans, raw nuts, you know, particularly walnuts. Not a lot because they begin to become calorically dense, but a small handful, walnuts in particular, because they have a really good omega-3, omega-6 ratio. Uh, And for my patients without heart disease, I'll recommend avocado as well, knowing that they're going to be getting good fats there. None of the junk food like cookies, chips, cakes, candy. I also recommend they have two heaping tablespoons of hemp seeds, chia seeds, or ground flaxseed meal each day to help them get the ALA that will hopefully be converted to omega-3s. And uh, then I say, if it has a face or comes from something with a face, don't eat it. I recommend not having chicken. I recommend not having turkey, fish. Fish is indeed better than red meat, but it's relative. And you know, there's a really cool study by Song in the Archives of Internal Medicine, or JAM Internal Medicine, where they replaced 3% of calories from animal-based food with 3% of calories from plant-based food. It's an epidemiologic study. So is that bad? Is it good? Is it bad? What is it? it? turns out if you replace just 3% of your calories from animal-based protein with 3% of calories from plant-based protein, you do better. And it was a big enough study they could look at all sorts of different kinds of animal proteins, like whether it's processed red meat, which of course the World Health Organization has now described as a class one carcinogen, meaning it causes cancer. Class one carcinogen is the same category as plutonium. Now, you're not going to get cancer after one processed meat sandwich, but it adds up over time. So, you know, processed red meat, red meat, poultry, dairy, eggs, all of those things in that study, if you replace just 3% of those calories with 3% of calories from plant-based protein, you live longer. So then I'll recommend, you know, not having milk from cows. I'll also, you know, have almond milk, soy milk, oat milk. I recommend patients not have eggs, cheese, or yogurt, because I personally believe that they will do better, I think based on the evidence, if they don't eat those things. So eating this way is unbelievably nutrient-dense. And I should say, I tell patients, if you're hungry, eat more. Have at it. Just more of the good stuff. Uh, because it's very nutrient-dense. It's not as calorically dense, so they probably have to eat more. I do have them supplement B12, and I, I check a B12 in pretty much all my patients when I first see them, and many patients have low B12 and they've been eating a typical Western diet. So I have not supplement that. I have not start 500 micrograms three times a week empirically, and I follow a level. And I've been encouraging people to supplement omega-3s lately because there are some issues with converting the ALA to omega-3, and particularly in older white people. And I do that for cognitive health, not for cardiac health. You know, so somebody goes 90% plant-based, they're not all the way in. Yeah, would we like them to go 100%? Sure, but hey, it's so much better than 20%. It begins to move the needle. And look, for my patients, anecdotally, I ask them, like, what percent are you now whole food, plant-based, no oil? Are you 5%? Are you 95%? Like, what percent? Whenever they tell me more than 50%, anecdotally, like, I have no way to know other than what they tell me, that's when I start to see benefits, clinical benefits. Like, cholesterol falls, they lose weight, they're starting to come off meds. Like, if they go, like you know, 90% or more, I see the most obscene turnarounds you've ever seen. I will begin to see changes within one to two weeks. We've had people reduce 10, 15 medications, lose 90, 100 pounds, avoid bypass surgery, avoid stents, reverse their diabetes or high blood pressure, and on and on. And so many benefits they wouldn't necessarily have thought of. I mean, you know, skin issues getting better, back pain issues getting better. I mean, these are anecdotes, but I see it time and time again. And I mean, look, you know, it's great to reverse your high blood pressure. That's great. But it's maybe perhaps more compelling for some people to say a lot of my patients, their erectile function gets better. And there's lots of pathophysiologic reason to think that that's the case. And that's, I think, an easier sell than saying, oh, you know, the, the high blood pressure, which you don't even feel, gets better. And people will often call who are on high blood pressure pills telling me they feel lightheaded. And that's because they're getting so much healthier. They don't need as many high blood pressure pills. So we start to reduce the dose. Usually within one to two weeks, their clothes starts to feel a little bit looser. If they have really bad angina, meaning chest pain because of cholesterol blockages in their heart, it starts to improve. They can, instead of walking like a block, they can walk a block and a half. And those kinds of benefits continue to accrue over time. And then oftentimes within three or four months, they may have reversed, depends how bad the diabetes is, but they may have reversed their diabetes or cholesterol is much lower, substantial weight loss. I also usually within one to two weeks, I hear sleeping better and better mental clarity. Those mental clarity, sleeping better, clothes looser and blood pressure falling are the things that I usually see really, really quickly. It's It's great.
1: There we go. I hope you found that interesting. Before I let you go, while on the theme of cardiovascular disease and making heart-healthy changes to our diet, I thought I would share with you the findings from a relatively new study out of Finland. In 2020, a group of researchers from the University of Helsinki conducted a very interesting study, a 12-week randomized controlled trial to see whether shifting from the typical Finnish diet a diet that is rich in animal foods to a more environmentally friendly plant-based Nordic diet would improve blood cholesterol levels. So, how did this study go down? They split 136 adult men and women into three groups with varying amounts of animal and plant protein. Group 1, a 70/30 group where 70% of their protein came from animal foods and 30% from plant foods. Group 2, a 50-50 group where 50% of their protein came from animal foods and 50% from plant foods, and group three, a 30-70 group where 30% of their protein came from animal foods and 70% from plant foods. So what happened? Well, in just 12 weeks, the researchers observed a stepwise reduction in total and LDL cholesterol, the cholesterol that causes plaque buildup in our arteries, as subjects consumed less animal protein and more plant protein. To give you an idea as to how meaningful these changes were, compared to the group eating the most animal protein, the group eating the lowest animal protein had an LDL cholesterol level that was 0.3 millimoles per litre lower. We know from genetic studies that this reduction over a lifetime is equivalent to a 16% lower risk of, of developing coronary heart disease. And remember, that's a diet where the subjects were still getting 30% of their protein from animal foods. As you can imagine, the further you move along the spectrum towards more plant protein and less animal protein, the lower you would expect your LDL cholesterol to be. And subsequently, the lower your predicted risk of heart disease would also be. The results from this Finnish randomized controlled trial are consistent with mountains of evidence, plenty of which was discussed by Dr. Ostfeld in this episode, that shows people adopting plant-based dietary patterns have significantly less risk of developing heart disease, the leading cause of death in Australia, killing one person every 18 minutes. This is where science can be extremely powerful. We don't have to add to these statistics Each of us can make changes to the way we eat and give ourselves the best chance at living healthier for longer, so we can spend more time doing whatever it is we love. It's really as simple as choosing lentils instead of beef, tofu instead of chicken, soy milk instead of dairy milk, etc. Anyway, I thought you might find that study interesting as it's very recent and is a very high-quality randomized controlled trial. I'll pop the link to the study into the show notes so you can take a closer look should you wish to. All right, science lesson done. Let's leave this one here. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do reach out to Dr. Osfeld. You can find him on Instagram at Dr. Osfeld. Thank you so much for hanging out with me all the way to the end here. I appreciate you. Let's make a pact. Meet me back here, same spot, in a few days' time, and do it all over again. Sound good? Great. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.